So as, we, um, as we're today looking at this conversation um, of, of family and what family is, that doesn't mean we're taking a little departure from the book of John, um, but we're going to talk today, which still fits in with what we've been talking about in John in that we are, um, where we are, I'll talk about in a second, but the idea of families, families is something that everyone has. Everybody has a family. Now, you, you may not have a very good family, or you may have a disconnected family or a neglectful family. You may even have an abusive family or a criminal family. There can be any number of different ways. Many are broken and many, many are lost, and all of us are a little bit dysfunctional in our families, at least. Um, we want to pretend like this is a new thing sometimes, as if the new strange shapes that families take, is, that that is actually new when it's not. Um, there may be expressions of it that in our culture we've come to embrace or to, uh, to accept that in our culture 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago we would, we would have said we're shameful or wrong or even sinful. Um, but the truth is, it, these, the messed up nature of families is not something new. Um, the challenges of families is not something new. And even the changes that have happened in the last generation or so um, as, as one guy said, talking about cell phones, they're not going back in the box. We have to learn to live in the world that we actually live in. So as we're engaging with these conversations, recognizing there are all kinds of dysfunctional and broken and messed up families, um, part of how we know they've been around for thousands of years is because we study Scripture. Um, we're, we're actually studying a family as we're in John chapter 11 that's different. It's different from how we think of it as the traditional nuclear family. You have a brother and two sisters who apparently live together as adults. Are any of them married? Don't know. Are they, are they old enough? Are their parents still around? We don't know. Are they living in the kind of stereotypical um, little environment that most Jewish families lived in at the time? We don't know. Their parents aren't mentioned. Their spouses aren't mentioned. Their children aren't mentioned. What we know is it seems that we have a man and his two sisters living in a home together in Bethany. That's different, or that's not at least not the typical expectation. But we know that that's not, even that's not new, that the differences or strangeness of families goes way, way, way back. Um, in fact, one of the things I had to be uh, trained to do as a therapist was to learn how to do a family history or even a family, what's called a genogram, which is to, to put all the different relationships in a family together multi-generationally. Um, it's a lot of work. What family do you think was chosen where I was at school for us to practice? We had to create one as an assignment for a certain family. What family do you think they chose? You might guess? Close. His grandfather. I, starting with Abraham. The family of Abraham and going down over the next few generations. Well, you talk about a jacked up family. I mean, they have got some real dysfunctions going on. They are, they are messed up people. And you can see the nature of the broken relationships and how they recapitulate themselves, how they repeat themselves, which is often true in our families today. And how the sins of one generation get passed down to the next generation and the next generation. We see that happen. So again, part of why we do these things and part of why we talk about these things is because they're real. This is real stuff. It can be gritty, hands-on, ugly, dysfunctional. And so we don't, we don't paint here this picture that somehow being a Christian means you've got it all together 
or that your family has it all together, or that you're somehow nailing it all the time. It's that you're just getting it perfect. That's not the case. If, if that's you, one, you should be up here because um, that's not me. If that's, if that's you, then you may be in the wrong place. But the truth is, if that's you, that probably just means you're delusional. And everyone else around you knows that you're the problem, right? That's the, if you don't know who the crazy one in your family is, it's probably you. Um, so if it's, if that's, the, the idea here is we engage with this partially because of the real thing. Now, why we do these devoted Sundays, part of why we do them is, um, though I had no, uh, <laughs> I don't even know what word to use, prediction, expectation, desire, uh, interest, willingness to be a pastor someday. Um, I still had that in my thought at one time in my head was, I remember thinking, if, I'm, if I am ever a pastor, I want us to take these key events, these key moments that we do, like communion, like baptism, like family dedications, and instead of them being this tag on, uh, just addition, like, hey, we're going to take 10 minutes and do this, that every once in a while we would take the entire time of a service and emphasize and teach this and teach what they are. That they're not some little thing that we just kind of do because we're Christians and we're weird, but that we say, no, there's a, there's a reason we do these things. So as we dive into this conversation, this, these devoted Sundays, so today what we're going to be talking about is the, is the dedication of family. The dedication of family comes from... Um, as, as ancient, uh, very far back Hebrew pictures, and probably far beyond that or, or at other times as well. So the church early on, I think, my personal opinion is, the early church made some mistakes. A couple hundred years after the ascension of Jesus Christ back to heaven, and the apostles began to travel and teach, and not long, within a few hundred years, I believe the church made a mistake in this, that they started, um, they started practicing infant baptism. Now, I know why they did it. Um, they did it because they, they equated or made connected communion, I mean, uh, circumcision and baptism. And so when you became a believer, you got baptized and were therefore now part of the body of Christ. Well, so they thought, well, then why do we wait in the same way that the Jewish people would circumcise a child on the eighth day? and therefore dedicate themselves to now the family of Judaism, we should be doing the same thing with infants. We need to be doing something to identify them as now a member of the family of Christ. So what they did was called christening. And many of you may have been christened. I was. Um, I come from a, a very multi-denominational family. Uh, my, uh, my grandparents on one side, United Methodist. Grandparents on the other side, Church of the Nazarene. Um, next generation down. So, so my parents, they did not go to church on their own in college. Um, kind of the stereotypical, they, fell, they kind of fell away from the church for years. And then they had, uh, they had me and decided by the time I was six, like, we need to get this boy in church. And uh, the, although the first church I went to, can you imagine this, by the way, nowadays? Can you imagine this? So I grew up out, out in the woods outside of Nacogdoches, Texas. And during the summer, not kidding, a white cargo van from one of the churches in town in Appleby would drive through the neighborhood and pick up kids and take us to, to, to vacation Bible school. Just drive through the neighborhood and pick kids up in a van. And all of our parents are like, sure, go. That's amazing when you think like, wow, wow. not the same place. Um, 
And the problem was, it was apparently a rather strange church, and so I came back from vacation Bible school the first day telling my parents what I had learned, and they were concerned about the stuff I had been taught. And so they were like, you know what, we need to get this boy in church. And so um, the first church they got invited to was a, a congregational Methodist church. And so that's where we went for a while until I was 14. And then we went to a Southern Baptist church after that. And I've, I've worked in seven churches representing four different denominations, um, I've all, at least. And so my, my uh, uncle on one side um, was a United Methodist pastor and I've watched him get moved from church to church to church to church all his life when the Methodist leadership decided it was time for him to move. Um, the other aunt on that side was Church of Christ. On the other side, the aunt and uncle were Assembly of God missionaries who became Assembly of God pastors. Um, and then my sister married into a Roman Catholic family. So again, multi-denominational. I've had to learn about each of these denominations as they get introduced to me. I've had to learn about them. One of the things we do when we look at these is throughout time, there are, there are words that get attached to stuff, like we're going to talk about the word sacrament or consecrate. And these are words that in the Roman Catholic world carry with them a whole lot of weight that we don't put on them. We don't put as much weight on them here, they, that they don't have the same eternal salvation impact to us. What we're saying is we're celebrating something that we believe God says is sacred, meaning holy, set apart, devoted. Therefore, we call these devoted Sundays. Um, as we see the mistakes that were made, as I was christened as, as a child, which according to the theology, now not of the Methodist church, but of many churches, is that that christening, that little baptism done with an infant, washes the sin of Adam off of them, and therefore now makes them part of the church. The Baptist forebears came along and said, we think that's a mistake, we don't see that in Scripture. I, I would agree. I think that that was a mistake that the early church made to equate baptism with circumcision. Um, I think there were better choices than that. It's understandable how those decisions were made, but I think there were better choices. And so at some point that began to change, and sure enough, that's where we are today. When we dedicate a family, what we're doing is we're following the, the concept, the imagery that's created in Scripture back way back in the Levitical teaching so, for example, in Leviticus 12, um, speaking of the mother, when her days of purification are completed, um, whether for a son, you got Leviticus 12 up there, um, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. So this was early on when you had a child. There was a period of time that the, the woman had to wait. And when she was done with this waiting period, this purification period, that what she would then do is take this, this sacrifice to, the at this time, the tabernacle, just a tent at Shiloh. So she, was, she and her family would travel up and down the hills and they would go and they would make these sacrifices there. This was practiced still a, probably a, over a thousand years later. With, uh, with Jesus Christ, it tells us in Luke 2, 22, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. We have a little parenthetical here. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now you can see there was a special sacrifice, a special 
emphasis that came with firstborn children. Um, in particular, if that firstborn was a son. Now, you may think, um, that, does that make the firstborn more special or does that make the sons more special? It does not, um, as is the case. So one, this is a response to God's, what God did in Egypt when he himself slew the firstborn son of each of the families in Egypt um, in, in an effort to declare war on the gods of Egypt. This is one of the things that God did. And here he's telling the people of Israel, you're going to remember that because you're going to take your firstborn, if they're a son, and you're going to bring them to the, to the and there's going to be a, a special consecration, a special recognition from the parents. This isn't about the nature of the child. It's about the memory of the parents being reminded of what's significant in regards to this. In fact, the language here is really interesting. What's still done today in Jewish families is that they take that child to the priest or to the rabbi or to whatever, and they will say, here's the child. And then essentially, they then have to buy the child back from the priest. Um, They give them a certain amount of money or something to buy the child back. Now, it's all very ceremonial and really kind of interesting how it's done. But, But this is the idea that we take the things that matter to us the most, the the concept of the giving of the first fruit, that thing that matters, the thing that matters to us because it was first. It's kind of like, you can imagine the significance if you remember when you you had kids that that first child um, was so fragile and you were so careful and you were, I remember Ginger being afraid to let other people hold Mark because she was afraid they would break them. This break it. It was, it was, uh, she was especially nervous if people walked on stairs while holding Mark. I mean, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like she, would, she would take Mark from her own mother before her mother could walk up or down stairs with Mark out of the fear that her mother, I guess, would fall. Like she had this image in her mind of, of her mom falling or my mom falling or, so, or me falling while carrying Mark. And so it was like, no, no, I'm the only one allowed to carry him upstairs. And of course, after, I mean, that's a significant thing. You, that firstborn child that you say, This is a special consecration to remind myself that even the firstborn belongs to God. And so this idea of the first fruit principle is there, that you consecrate that first child. In particular, um, we do all of them. They did, by the way, they also consecrated all children. This after the purification was done with every child, male or female, no matter the birth order, there was something special there. In Exodus 13, um, we see... Um, God's instruction, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever's the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. Um, again, the, the language here is really interesting. We actually discussed it during the first service a little bit, during, literally during the first service. I asked Paul to do some research on if these are two different things, the firstborn son versus the firstborn. And, and so he did some research, and it's, it's actually not totally clear, and the Jewish people have to wrestle with that a little bit still to this day. But we consecrate every child as a church. We believe that, that children are sacred. There's something holy about the creation of a child, about the beginning of a child. Let me tell you why. Jesus, there's lots of debate on what it means to be created in the image of God, and we could discuss it forever But one thing we know for sure Jesus teaches us that it's about ownership. It's about property rights. When Jesus is speaking to the people, he's having an argument with them, and they ask if they should pay taxes, and Jesus says, well, does anybody have a coin? Somebody pulls out a a Roman coin, and he says, whose picture is on it? And they say, well, Caesar's picture is on it. 
And he gives this famous answer, then give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. Well, how do you know? What do you give to Caesar? Well, you give him the coin. Why? Because it's his. How do you know? Because it has his image. But notice the second thing he says is, and give to God what is God's. He's interpreting this teaching for us. So what do you give to God's? Us. You give it, give it what is his. Well, how do you know what's his? It's going to have his image. Well, what bears his image? We do. And so because we believe that at conception, that a human being bears the image of God at conception is why we place the priority, the sacredness, the holiness of a human life. And only God, God is the only one. He never gives up authority to take human life. That's always his responsibility. He can steward it and does. He tells us at different times of Scripture, this is when you take a human life. But it can only be done when he instructs it. He's the only one who gets it. He's the only one who has the authority and power because after all, we are his, we bear his image. So we, we engage with children as sacred now, there's going to be plenty of people in the room who have experienced miscarriage or abortion or, or have lost a child. And so this is, this is not a, we don't, we don't come at this from a, a recrimination or even a political perspective. This is just what scripture teaches us. That from the womb, from the very, very beginning, a child is sacred. So when we do a family dedication, part of what we're doing is we are celebrating the sacred. That's what it is. That's what we do with communion is we celebrate the sacred. It's what we're doing at when we do baptism, as we're celebrating the sacred, in that sense, it's like a sacrament. Isaiah 44 says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. These children need to learn from us, and we need to be dedicated to this. This is what the parents have dedicated themselves to. Proverbs 1, 8, and 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and a pendant for your neck. And we need to learn from them. Part of the joy of being in a church that has lots of children is that people, people will say, it's always interesting when they'll have um, a senior citizen family or a couple join the church, and they'll say, the reason we're coming to this church is because it feels alive. I'll tell you how it feels alive. It feels alive because we have so many little kids everywhere, right? I mean, if you, if you work over there, and I hope you do, if you work over there in the children's ministry, lively is a nice way to put it, right? <laughs> There's a lot of energy going on over there, and it's, it's good for us to see. Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus actually says in Matthew 18, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There's a type of humility that children have. There's a, there's a neediness. There's a, and, and I don't mean necessarily some moral purity, some more moral humbleness, but there's a, there's a neediness that they exhibit. There's a humble status that they have that we need to learn as well. Um, the calling of the family within the church, we believe, is a holy calling. No one can perfectly exemplify the traits of God by themselves, not fathers, not mothers. And so we need a whole church full of people to, to clarify that and to teach that, to help our children understand that. Um, in Psalm 127, I'm not going to spend much time here, although I, I love this passage. Um, in Psalm 127, um, we get this, this, this beautiful picture, this analogy of the relationship of 
um, children being a heritage from the Lord, a fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Um, there, again, there's tons of fun stuff to talk about here. Clearly what the psalmist is talking about is the idea that, that having lots of kids means you're not going to be embarrassed when the enemy shows up. Um, more is better in a, in a culture like the one they were in when it comes to children. Not always the case today. Not always the same thing. Um, I borrowed this longbow from Micah McHugh. Not, um, again, this is not the weapon that they would have been using at the time of the Psalms. And they would not, professional soldiers were a, a rarity during the time of the Psalms. There would have been very few. King David had 30, and that was the type of, he, he had a kingdom and would have had 30 professional soldiers. When they went to war, everybody else would have been farmers and and workers of the land who just set down their shovels and picked up a spear and went to battle. But he had 30 picked mighty men who fought for him. They were, that's probably what he could afford to provide for without them having to work themselves. But there's a cool image that comes from this that I love the longbow with, especially for us as men, I think we, we, this speaks to us. Um, again, it's, um, that time in history is, is really fascinating to me, but in the 1100s and 1200s and, and 1300s and on, the power of the, of the Welsh longbow was really something extraordinary and stood out, and it teaches us something about the concept of an archer, where you had professional archers who from childhood were given bows. They got stronger and stronger and stronger and harder and harder to pull. And, and in the end, you had people at the battle like of Agincourt where, where there were men who could, who could have six arrows in the air at a time. They could fire so fast and so far and shoot a man off the back of a horse at a quarter of a mile and shoot an arrow, according to legend, as far as maybe a mile. Um, they, they were, you know, some of you who are bow hunters, you're used to a, a, a compound bow that maybe it's a 50, 60, or 70-pound or pull but has a break in it that divides it by about 90% at some point so you can pull it and hold it. If you can imagine a, a maybe a 100, 120-pound longbow pull longbow that was used at that time. That's like taking a broomstick and bending it and shooting an arrow with it. Um, and so there was, a, there was an exceptional mindset, the mindset that I think is cool for us as men to hear, which is this. Um, you should be, we should be as good at being a parent as we are at anything. As good as we are as our profession, we should be that good at being a family man, at being a spouse and a father. Um, all, the, all the education we do to be better doctors or better salespeople or better... Um, whatever it is that we do, engineers and, and, and teachers and everything else that we would say, how much do I read and learn and grow at being better at being a man of the family, a leader of my family? That's why I like this imagery. I think it sticks with me very well, the idea that I would want to be as good at my family, at being a family man, as, as the Welsh longbowmen were at that. Seemingly extraordinary, something beyond the norm. It's a cool picture and when we look at the goal of us as, as followers of Christ, Psalm 71, 18, even to old age and gray hair, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation and your power to all those who come. This is the, this is the ambition of all of us as Christians is that, is that before we die, we would successfully pass on to the next generation what God has taught us. And the Apostle Paul reemphasizes this to his spiritual child, Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who are able to teach it to others also. Part of what we're doing is we're having families stand up and dedicate themselves to raise their children based on these biblical truths. 
And then we stand up with them and say, we get it, and we're here with you. We're here to help you with those children. We're here to come alongside you when it's hard. We're here to raise you up and encourage you every chance we get. So they dedicated themselves to that. We dedicate ourselves to them. That's why it's a family dedication. As a family, they dedicate themselves, and then we dedicate ourselves to them as a family. I'll end with a reminder of what it is that we're looking at from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the fundamental teaching. This is, what it, this is the basic premise of being a monotheist who follows Yahweh. Someone who follows Yahweh as God. Verse 6 says, And these words that I command you shall be on your heart, and you'll teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be a front, as frontlets between your eyes. In the everyday normal stuff that we do, walking and sitting and moving around and driving and throwing a ball, that we're talking about the truth of who God is. And then the extraordinary things that we do, like hanging God's word between our very eyes, that we would be teaching these truths to our children and to our grandchildren, to our, to our nep- nieces and our nephews and to our friends' kids. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. May God's word saturate our lives to such a degree that the overflow of who we are will be teaching our children um, and so now we move into a time of communion. I'm going to turn it over to Paul. And as he comes up, we'll be turning it over to saying, let's, let's use this as a time to really focus in on what God is teaching us. So 